As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Straight Outta Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. On this week's show, we're rounding up deadline day departures, looking back on the weekend win against Crystal Palace, talking mixed news on the international front and answering your questions. Available wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic, this is Straight Outta Cobham. Yes, welcome in listener Matt Davis-Adams here to guide you through another week in the world of Chelsea FC in the company of two of the Athletics Blues experts. Dom Fifield on assignment this week, but after putting a mammoth deadline day shift in, my other two pals are back at the grindstone again. Hello, Simon Johnson. Hello. Hello, Liam Toomey. Hello. We managed to loan Dom out, but the squad still feels <laughs> a little bit bloated. Yeah, the buyback clause is astronomical. Um, Okay, I mentioned deadline day. That's where we're going to start the show. No 2011-style mad trolley dash or 2017-esque impulse purchases from the bargain bin section for Chelsea this year, having got their big business done relatively early. Simon, you and and Liam were both on duty yesterday. Was was there at any point on deadline day that that there looked like there might be an incoming or or were, were Chelsea... Perfectly happy that, you know, even if they were offered Thomas Party or somebody like that, they, they weren't going to try and make a move. No. Um, well, certainly from my understanding that there was only one possible incoming has been written about for months, Declan Rice. But once it got to such a late stage, it was never going to happen, not only from the West Ham side, but it also revolved around who Chelsea could get out. Um, and that's proved very difficult. So, yeah, I was always aware. In the back of your mind, you sort of think, this is Chelsea, you know, they can always do something a bit bonkers because that's Chelsea to take you by surprise. But I must admit, I didn't really expect anything. And it was all about, the whole day was about who they could get rid of, mainly on loan. And and that's why it proved to be quite a torturous process, not only for Chelsea, but for those journalists covering the club because... In the end, they didn't actually get anywhere near the amount of players they wanted to get rid of out of Stamford Bridge. Hey, listen, if there's one benefit of the uh, pandemic that we're all suffering through, it's that at least you didn't have to stand around at Cobham for, for 12 hours, I guess. Uh, Liam, you've written a piece for The Athletic entitled Chelsea Won the Transfer Window. Give us a little tease of that and, and how you reached that conclusion. Yeah, so I, 
I think the point of a transfer window is to end it with your squad in a in a better position than you started it with. And you know, for for all the fact that Chelsea squad is too bloated now and they didn't manage to offload the players they wanted, it's undeniable that they are in such a stronger position now than they were only a few weeks ago and that's not just looking ahead towards this season but the players they've signed have the ability to be such long-term difference makers that they're really well positioned now particularly if they continue to build on this in, in the next few windows to be contenders again for the Premier League and the Champions League on a on a yearly basis you know even getting Kai Havertz alone would have been a really encouraging window because it would have been probably Chelsea's most significant signing, maybe since Eden Hazard in terms of convincing, you know, one of the most coveted young players in Europe that Chelsea was the place for him to take the next step. But they didn't just get Kai Havertz, they got Timo Werner, they got Hakim Ziyech, you know, you get Thiago Silva on a, on a free transfer in the end. You know, they, they managed to address just about the the most pressing defensive needs in this team although you can obviously question the players they ended up going for and and those were certainly more of the compromise signings but the 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 really top targets they went for they by and large got this in this window and and very very few clubs can say that so that was my that was my theory really behind saying that Chelsea won the transfer window and I don't think it's a terribly controversial statement based on what they did on the buying side. We can read that article in full. Uh, subscribe to The Athletic right now for just £1 a month. Simply head over to theathletic.com slash ChelseaPod. Uh, in terms of outgoings, not as many as we expected. Timoe Bakayoko, remember him? He joined Napoli on loan. Uh, the loan departure that really caught the eye there. Ruben Loftus-Cheek heading to Fulham for the season. Um, Simon, what, what was the thinking in, in sending him there? Sievers tweeted me to ask if any other clubs were, were in contention to sign him. Was, was it just a case of, well, this is who's in for him, so that's where he's going? Yeah, there, there was more than one club um, in for Loftus-Cheek, as you'd expect. Um, of course, quite well documented, but Aston Villa was one of those. They were weighing up um, between him and Ross Barkley. They ended up going for Ross Barkley. The problem that Loftus-Cheek um, had was that his, his wages of £150,000 a week inevitably made it a bit difficult for a deal to be done. I think there's been some, inevitably, some compromise with, between Chelsea and Fulham. But I think this is a good move. Um, it's all about game time. He should get that in a Fulham shirt, very much like how he got a lot of game time at Crystal Palace when he went on loan there. He, he's not. He's obviously not having to move just down the road from Stamford Bridge. Um, he'll be able to pop into Cobham any time. And I just think the most important thing for Loftus-Cheek is that run of games that he he's inevitably not going to get in a Chelsea shirt. I think this is a move that's been pushed not just by by Chelsea and, and Frank Lampard, who wants him to, to get that game time, but I think Loftus-Cheek also, after, that, after what happened in the Brighton game and, and not being selected for a few squads that, that he realised that it's not going to happen for him at the moment and that's not good for him having missed so much football. So um, I, I just think it's a win-win situation for Chelsea and I, I, I just hope, and for Loftus-Cheek, and I just hope that um, his fitness holds up so he can get that valuable game time that he so desperately needs. What do you think, Liam? Is this the right move for him? I mean, I don't think it's 
the dream loan because I don't think it's as good as Crystal Palace was for him a couple of years ago. I mean, they they were a better team for a start, a more a more secure team that had a clearer idea of how they were going to win games. I mean, Fulham have so far looked like Premier League cannon fodder, um, and and so hopefully they can they can improve. And and I'm sure Loftus Cheek will help improve them a little bit on the pitch, primarily. As Simon says, this is about game time. And if nothing else, he should play pretty much every week, every week that he's fit um, for Fulham. And and, and the key for everyone involved is that Loftus-Cheek just starts to feel like a footballer again and and starts to to show more regular flashes of the hugely talented player that he is. And um, I think key to this whole process is that Lampard has been very clear that he still sees Loftus-Cheek's long-term future at Stamford Bridge. This is this is purely a means to an end and hopefully it, it works out for him. I, I'm personally rooting for him because he's been so incredibly unlucky over the last 18 months, two years, um, that he really, really deserves a change of fortune and, and hopefully Fulham can give him that. So Loftus-Cheek has left on loan, but plenty of players who we thought might haven't. Uh, Alonso, Emerson, Drinkwater, the list goes on. Uh, have you got a theory, Simon, as, as to why it's not just Chelsea who've been in this situation, but but other Premier League clubs have, have found it so difficult to get rid of players, even on loan? I know we've spoken about the the impact of COVID on clubs' finances, but 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 even for loan deals, it seems that that nobody's been been really taking the plunge. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's it's still about wages. So, so whilst loan deals are, are technically cheaper, um, well, obviously cheaper, um, you've still got loan fees, the, the the wages, agents' fees. Um, so the price can still rack up, um, particularly when you're talking about players on the kind of salaries that that, for example, the Chelsea players are on, which 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 are considerable. So it does become a difficult process. Plus, also, there's that element of of trying to get rid of a player that perhaps isn't in form, isn't wanted, etc. It's it's not quite so desirable. Um, look, you know, cl- clubs did look at look at the, the, the Chelsea players. It's not like they didn't generate any interest. But when you've got someone like Marina Granovskaya, who's got a, a history of driving a a hard deal, then then inevitably sometimes they're not always going to come off. You have to say, like looking at this window, it's that rare, very rare thing from a Chelsea point of view, um, not to have that big sale, that big kind of Eden Hazard, Morata, Oscar, David Luiz, you know, over the years, the amount of big money sales they've managed to do. And and this is that rare case of, of Chelsea not really being able to get a big, big one on their on their balance sheet. Here's a question from Ishan Shah. He wants to know, it was reported that Rudiger's loan deal was off after he refused to sign a contract extension. Should Chelsea have ditched this policy for the current season to give Lampard the squad size he desired? Was protecting his value worth the risk of unrest within the squad? Rudiger, not the only person that this applies to, I I guess, Liam. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, from what we were told, um, Rudiger signing a contract extension was not a prerequisite from Chelsea for him going on loan that he he would in theory have still been allowed to to leave on loan even if he hadn't have agreed to it. So um, I know Chelsea have have operated that way in the past, but it it doesn't seem like that was the case here. Um, more broadly, I think Chelsea have kind of shot themselves in the foot really with what they've done in the last couple of days of this window because 
yes, they probably would have had to compromise on still paying some of these players wages to play for other teams and not getting the kind of loan fees that they probably ordinarily would have done in a normal market. But talk of protecting Rudiger's value and protecting the value of players like Alonso and Emerson, their value is not going to be protected if they're simply not getting a look in into Lampard's squad. And Lampard's squad is so big now, there there simply aren't the minutes for all these players. They're already out of the League Cup, so that removes uh, one of the likelier opportunities for some of these guys to play. And Lampard doesn't really have the scope to play players that he doesn't fully trust in the Premier League and Champions League because there are raised expectations this year. So there isn't that long to go before January. That's the one advantage of this later deadline. And that's probably factored into some of these decisions. But you're still looking at some of these players on the fringes of the first team squad simply not playing very much um, for the next couple of months. And aside from the problems that creates for Lampard in terms of squad dynamics and having unhappy players at Cobham every day, um, it just doesn't seem to make great business sense either. So I, I do think Chelsea have been a little bit self-defeating with their thinking here. Yeah, the, your point on January is, is raised by uh, Atish saying that, you know, obviously that's not very far away, so so players can stay in shape. And, and another one here on a related note from Neil, who says, what happens to the likes of Moses, Drinkwater, Baba Rahman, ostracised from the first team, no Carabao Cup to play, etc. And Simon, Chelsea won't play these players in their under-23 side, will they? You know, going on what we've seen in, in previous seasons. So they are just going to be kicking around, probably on a separate field at Cobham, just keeping themselves to themselves effectively it's not it's not the, the ideal kind of atmosphere you want to be fostering around the place i guess oh definitely not um yeah i mean it is clearly not healthy um to have guys like that just sort of hanging around kicking the ball now i mean chelsea do have of course the there is the option of perhaps sending to a efl club obviously a championship club because the window for domestic deals with the efl is extended to october the 16th but again you'd imagine that, that Chelsea will have to come to some kind of agreement over wages because I doubt there's many championship clubs can afford the kind of uh, money that those guys are on. But um, you know, as Liam points out, you know there is January sort of not too far away, but it's not very healthy um, to have players just turning up, kicking the ball around, going home. I mean, Danny Drinkwater, this is a, a very scary, familiar situation for him having spent a year in this position under Sarri. And the last thing he'll want is um, to be put in that scenario again. So it, it, it's not ideal by any means. And, and certainly Frank Lampard would have, would have hoped his squad to be a lot leaner than it is. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Athletic, The Next Big Thing. You know, there's nothing better than I don't think as a fan to see a lad coming on for his debut and I love the way they can't even fill the shirt properly. It's an absolutely stunning goal! This season we'll be drawing on the knowledge of our incredible football writers to give you the ultimate briefing on the stars of tomorrow. You know, people always question, you know, what, what is the plan for these young players? Our experts know these players better than anyone else. That's the thing with him. I mean, when he, he made his debut with the first team, I, I sort of said to him before the game, I have no worry about you. You know, I just, I know uh, how confident you are in your own ability, but he hasn't got that overconfidence. It all starts on September the 28th. 
with a full profile of Liverpool's Billy Cometio. It's quite an, an incredible story, really, because I mean, I, I was over in Boston for the for the US tour last summer. You know, he wasn't really being spoken about as a potential first-team player, certainly not for this season. That's the next big thing, the latest podcast from The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As Simon mentioned there, still a couple of weeks left for EFL clubs to sign players, so there will be some outgoings. The likes of Jake Clark Salter will probably end up somewhere in the championship, but we will update you on that as and when it happens. Uh, so after a positive weekend, there was some mixed blues news that broke on Monday. First, the story emerged that Tammy Abraham and Ben Chilwell, along with Jaden Sancho, had broken COVID guidelines by attending a surprise birthday party for Abraham, who turned 23 over the weekend. There were more than six people in attendance at the shindig. Uh, Abraham wasn't aware of the party, so at least the surprise element of it was a success. Uh, Abraham and Chilwell both issued public apologies along with Sancho. They were told not to join up with the England squad. At the time of recording, we don't know if they'll be considered for Thursday's friendly against Wales. Liam, any idea what the inside view from the club is on, on this latest COVID breach? Well, I think the, the, the sense I've got is that they're going to be reminded, well, all the players are going to be reminded of the responsibilities they have with regards to social distancing um, and, and following government guidelines wherever possible. But there, I think there's also a recognition that this was not some all night rave or, you know, some some massive house party where 100 people were involved. It, it's clearly not acceptable. Um and, and not the kind of thing that the club want to see appearing in national newspapers. But uh, I don't think in the grand scheme of things, it's it's the biggest problem in the world. So I think it's something that, that Chelsea are going to move on fairly quickly from and they're not making a massive deal out of it. In better news, Rhys James got his first call up to the senior England squad after Raheem Sterling pulled out injured. Simon, this feels like good timing for Rhys. You know, we, we talk a lot about how many options England have got in that position, but Trent Alexander-Arnold hasn't had the greatest start to the season. And what Rhys James has, which maybe some of those other contenders don't, is a bit more versatility. So, so maybe that will be the key to him staying in the squad now he's got there. Possibly. I mean, I mean of course... Rhys James himself has, uh, was left out of, of the Crystal Palace game. So, you know, for, after a difficult uh, defence performance against West Brom. So, you know, it, it's not like he's uh, he's error-proof himself. But I, I just think that what a Philip it is for him at, at this very young, young age, very early stage of his Chelsea career, and what a boost it must have given him because it, it must have been a bit disappointing not to start against Crystal Palace. Now it's up to him really to make an impression. There's a good chance, given that there's three England games in a short amount of time, starting with Wales, there's a very good chance that he, he might even get on the pitch, one would imagine, just so that uh, Southgate can have a look at him. I mean, you'd still say that Trent Alexander-Arnold is, is, is the go-to man for the right-back position. Yes, it, it was a an absolute shocker uh, that he experienced it against Aston Villa and, and the Liverpool team experienced 
but um, but I, I just think giving giving Reese that experience, that sort of that look at the senior camp in a very unpressured environment. Even the games that follow UEFA Nations League, it's it's glorified friendlies essentially. Um, I, I just think it can't do him any harm whatsoever. Yeah, well, let's hope he gets some game time. Busy old show today. We haven't even begun to talk about Saturday's thumping win, so we'll rectify that now. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. So, after a mind-numbingly tedious first half, Chelsea turned on the style after the break to demolish Crystal Palace 4-0 at Stamford Bridge on Saturday, courtesy of goals from Ben Chilwell, Kurt Zuma, and a pair of pens from Jorginho. Uh, Liam, it was a result that looked decent at full-time, but much better by the end of the weekend, given what happened elsewhere. Yeah, what an absolutely bonkers weekend in the Premier League. and It's, it's rare for Chelsea to to be part of one of the less noteworthy games, um, particularly Lampard's Chelsea. But they they did what they had to do. I didn't actually think it was a particularly good attacking performance, despite the fact they won 4-0. I think the, the two penalties kind of inflated things a little bit. They looked quite stagnant for, for long stretches in attack. And I think a big part of that is it's quite difficult to look good against the Roy Hodgson team particularly when they're as focused on nullifying you as they were in the first half at Stamford Bridge. But Chelsea showed good patience. Um, They got a little bit of luck to make the breakthrough early in the second half with Ben Chilwell, who was excellent all round, um, thought the best player on the pitch. And they were fairly clinical and took their chances when they arrived. And, And of course, probably the most encouraging thing, is um, how how in control of the game they were at the other end and Palace never threatened Edouard Mendy a first clean sheet and I can't even remember when the last one actually was um, <laughs> it's been so long but it yeah pa- Palace clearly didn't have a good day they didn't execute their game plan anywhere near as well as they they hoped they might as Dom said the absence of Jeffrey Schlupp uh, proved proved decisive. It, it was as comfortable as Lampard could ever have dreamed it to be. And um, and those are the kind of results that Chelsea really need in the next few weeks to get some confidence and momentum. Uh, Simon, Liam mentioned it, the consequences for Frank Lampard. There was some pressure building up on him. The fact that there was an international break to follow as well. You always want to go into that off the back of a, a good result. So so this feels like, you know, not, not crucial for Lampard's future by any means, but certainly a, a really, really timely victory. Yeah, and I mean, I, I actually wrote a piece about about this sort of ahead of the Palace game that the, the question of Chelsea and coaches giving them time, etc. You could argue that history shows that that this is a club where that the two never go together. Um, but I was just making the point that 
because of the nature of Lampard's reign, the first year not having any signings, he's, he's essentially sort of just a few weeks into starting to build the squad that he wants. Um, so that's why I sort of went and explained, not a direct comparison, but sort of saying how as good a managers as, as Klopp and uh, Guardiola had already proven themselves to be, even they needed time to to get things play, get the team playing the the way they want, and and therefore, you know, surely Lampard should be given the same grace a little bit. Certainly at, at this stage of the season, where it seemed like they're, I mean, we've had readers. Um, I'm sure Liam can back me up on this. Readers sort of questioning Lampard already, sort of saying, "Oh, is he the right man for the job?" And 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 I just sort of felt like some perspective needed to be. Um, relayed that it's still very early on in the season, still very early on in Lampard's time at Chelsea, and 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 perhaps you know it, in a few months' time, if all the new signings are playing and it's Lampard's team, and Chelsea is still uh, conceding the goals that they did at West Brom and 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 struggling in mid-table, then I think it's a different conversation. But after a few games, I just felt there was a little bit. Of, of rashness going on and and of course the weekend showed that you know here suddenly Chelsea just a couple of points behind Liverpool after four games and they certainly would have accepted that before a ball was kicked and and just quickly going back to sort of Lampard his demeanour after the final whistle on Saturday was notably buoyant like compared to that ashen face expression post West Brom I think Marcus Alonso had played a part in that here we saw him laughing, joking, like you could sort of sense this kind of relief and just and just delight at what he'd seen. And it does make the international break far more relaxing for him to deal with. But still, there will be a lot of questions for him to answer when uh, when Chelsea players return. Yeah, one of those questions, Liam, as we, as we round off on the Palace game, regarding Timo Werner, Ben Carter wants to know if we should be worried that he's yet to score in the league. We've seen him playing off the left in the last few games. Do you think that that's something that's going to continue? I, I kind of wondered when, when Tammy had his strop about not getting the penalty, if he was thinking, I need to score here, otherwise I'm going to be out and, and Werner's going to be played through the middle. Do you think that that is ultimately where we're going to see him? It's a tricky one. I think Werner was told by Lampard that he would be used predominantly through the middle as part of the conversations they had when, when Chelsea were courting him. But he... You know, there there are going to be different things tried as Lampard tries to balance this team, particularly with Christian Pulisic and Hakim Ziyech not available to any meaningful extent yet. I don't think there's a massive cause for concern about Werner. I think he looked really sharp against Brighton and Liverpool when he was up front. His movement was excellent. It, it looked like only a matter of time before he'd get his first goal. And he, of course, he won penalties in both of those games. Off the left, the results have been a, a bit less consistent. At times, he struggled to get into games. But I also think that's partly because I think Chelsea's right flank will be a lot more favourable towards Werner when ZX there, swinging in crosses to the back post, where he can kind of do the Quincy Promise role of coming in and, and tapping those in. Having said that, he has still had good moments in that role. You know, he scored a really nice goal against Tottenham in the Cup hit the crossbar against um, West Brom, should have scored that. So I, I don't have any concerns about him long term. I think he, he already looks um, very sharp and very confident. He's just trying to find his, his way in this new team and Lampard's still trying to figure out the best best way to use him. I I probably do expect him to be used more up front than on the wing, particularly when Pulisic's back. And that will come back to, to form 
who who out of he or Tammy Abraham or Olivier Giroud is, is playing better. And that, that probably helps explain, as you said, Abraham's sense of urgency with that penalty against Palace. Front three, a Werner in the middle, Ziyech and Pulisic, Simon. That is absolutely mouthwatering, isn't it? It's going to be tricky for the likes of, of Abraham Mount and others to, to dislodge those if, if, if they hit the ground running. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to win too many headers, but um, but yeah, no, I mean, that that was my, when I when I wrote a best 11 piece, that was the three I went with, with Havertz, as I think I put him as an attacking midfielder in a 4-3-3, but you can sort of certainly see in the way he's been lined up as a number 10. Um, I have to say Havertz, with, with each game I see, you, you, can, you can see him growing into the role. I mean, there were times at Palace where... Um, it sounds a bit cheesy to say this, but when he was carrying with the ball, he was he looked like a Rolls Royce, just just sort of cruising. There was that run, that charging run, where he picked it up, I think, in Chelsea's half, and then just carried it about 40, 50 yards. The Palace players couldn't get near him. The only mistake I thought he made was, and, I, and I've noticed this quite a bit, is that he looked for Werner rather than Tammy Abraham. And I, and I do sort of suspect those two, Werner and Havertz, almost out of a source of comfort, because they know each other more than, understandably, the, the other Chelsea players, that they look for each other more. You, you, you do sort of sense with those two, it, it, and everyone's getting used to them, and, and they're getting used to the others. Um, but it would be remiss of me, really, not to talk, and remiss of us, not to talk about Ben Chilwell's debut, uh, Premier League debut uh, for Chelsea, which was, um, as far as debuts go, was, well, it was just fantastic start. Um, he really was involved so much um, as an attacking threat. He got back well. He took seemed to take every single set piece, actually looked dangerous from set pieces. Of course, scored the opening goal, set up the second one. It was a really good performance. And like, it's early days, you don't want to get carried away. But I, I, I thought he kind of emphasised just why Chelsea had made him their, their, their main target for so long for that left-back position. And secondly, just a quick shout out to Thiago Silva, who um, who just looked—he looked like the player that's played at the very highest level. And I, I threw out a stat that I think he completed 112 of 116 passes. Someone came back to me and said, "Oh well, most of those were sideways." Well, they weren't—they weren't watching the game because there were quite a few ga- a few passes he made that were that were. Um, Progressive and, and and sort of cutting through the lines, etc. And I, I just thought he looked a class apart. Yeah, we'll see what shape everybody's in when they come back from international duty. Chelsea's next game at home to Southampton on the 17th of October. Next today, we'll round up how the other Chelsea teams have fared since we last spoke. Well, after losing the FA Cup quarterfinal against Everton a fortnight ago, Chelsea's women's team got back to winning ways in the WSL, beating Birmingham by a goal to nil on Sunday thanks to a cute Fran Kirby header. And meanwhile, in terms of the men's academy sides, the under 18 stuttering start to the season continued. They went down 1 0 to Crystal Palace, means they've won just one of their opening four league games. Better news for the under 23s, though. After losing their 21 match unbeaten run in PL2 against Brighton, they bounced back this past weekend, recording a comfortable 3 0 win 
against Arsenal at Kings Meadow. Goals from Ian Martson, Brian Fiabema and the hugely impressive Tino Livramento, who's in the England under-20 squad. He's only 17, a right winger come wing-back, really promising player. Uh, that game followed the under-19s, picking up two points in the EFL Trophy on Tuesday of last week. They drew one all at Walsall and then won the subsequent penalty shootout to take the bonus point. It means they've still got a chance of making the knockout stages ahead of their final group game against Bristol Rovers next month. That's just about it from us for this week. Before we go, though, let's hear what the chaps will be writing for Athletic subscribers to enjoy in the coming days. Simon, what's on your agenda? I can't go into everything I'm I'm looking into, but uh, one of the pieces that me and Liam are currently working on, whether it runs this week, I'm not sure yet, but we're just asking the question about do you need a defensive coach to organise a defence? Uh, it's actually a question that's been posed to us by our readers. Um, so we were just talking to some uh, ex-players, etc., um, for to get their insight on whether that's um, a valid question or not. Liam, that's going to be your your main project for the week. What what else can people read from you on the site? So I am at this very minute also working on um, a piece alluding to what we discussed earlier, which is how Chelsea's um, failure to offload some of the players that they don't want or that Lampard doesn't want could complicate things for Lampard in the, in the next few months. Um, that piece should probably be up on the Athletic, maybe even by the time this podcast is live. So be sure to check that one out. And then I'm also trying to work on a piece about Ruben Loftus Cheek and you know what the what the loan at Fulham could do for him. Well, I'm an Athletic subscriber, so I'm looking forward to reading those. Remember, if you want to read the articles from the chaps, you can do for just £1 a month. Simply head over to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. And my thanks to Simon and to Liam and to producer Adonis, but mostly to you, listener, for lending us your ears. We'll catch up with you again next week, but it's bye for now. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.